So hear the word of God, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written... For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And that is the word of the Lord, which endures forever. May God bless it to us. Well, as I said, we're approaching the closing verses of this wonderful, uh, well, I might dare to say, heavenly-minded passage of Scripture, Romans 8. And I'm sure as we get closer to the end, these are some of the more memorable words that we have committed to memory. For those of us who have heard of this passage, the, these words are setting for us that great foundation of our assurance of God's wondrous love. You know, have you ever had someone ask you this question? And I hope you have. I hope in your witness and testimony that someone has asked you this. How is it that you can be so confident that you are saved and that when you die, you will be in heaven? Uh, How do you know that you haven't committed some sin that has so offended God that His love has left you? How do you know that God's love is still upon you? And how do you answer those questions? How do you know you will be loved and received into eternal glory? And sometimes when you give a response to those questions, sometimes I have found people kind of wondering if there is an ounce of haughtiness in the answer because how can you be so sure when you talk to other people of other faiths and cultic cultic faiths that rely upon works and rely upon a good life and rely upon a testimony of a good life as their foundation of assurance. And they don't have that same confidence. They don't have that same strength of assurance because they're always looking to themselves. And when you come along and you give the definitive response, because the Lord Jesus Christ has saved me 
has shed His blood for me, has taken away my condemnation, has taken away the judgment I deserve for all my sins, and has given me eternal life, and I am in His hands, and nothing shall ever pluck me out. When you give such an answer to such a one whose confidence is resting in their own good works and in their own self-righteousness, there's this air of haughtiness that they perceive in such a response. And and it isn't haughtiness to be able to answer that way. And what we see Paul here in, in the closing verses of this passage, he, he utilizes in, in a very ascending way. He's taking us upstairs, if you will. Every step with another question, uh, responding with a greater truth that becomes the surety of our foundation that God's love can never be taken away from us. And he does this with with these four questions that continually affirm that foundation of our assurance of God's love. Verse 31, the first question, If God is for us, who can be against us? And if you want to know, and somebody says, how do you know God is for you? Paul says, well, look to the cross. (laughs) You have no greater demonstration of the surety that God is for you than the cross of Jesus Christ. God did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him up for us all. That's the greatest thing God could have done. And anything He does for us afterwards is small in comparison to that. How shall He not freely give us all things in Christ? You see, we're looking away from ourselves and there we're able to say, God is for us. And the question is, who can be against us? And the answer is, no one. (laughs) No one. And then he brings us to that second question in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That is, who is able... To convict you of sin. And again, the answer is, look, it is is God who justifies. It is God who through His Son, it is the Heavenly Father through His Son, who has come with such a sacrifice that indeed all your sins, and in fact all the sins of all God's people, of all generations, every single sin has been paid for. There is no more penalty to be paid for any sin that we have committed or will commit. Isn't that amazing? The justifying grace of God is such a a solid foundation for us that He asks, who can bring a charge against you? And your answer is, no one. And and then the third question in in verse 34, who is he who condemns? In other words, who can come along and, and bring forth a condemnation? You deserve to be in hell. We might say, well, you know, in one sense you're right, I do deserve it. But you can't hold that over me because I am in Christ. 
and the condemnation that I have deserved for all of my sins against a holy God. They have been born by Him. They have been born unto death. And He has risen in righteousness and truth. And God has demonstrated His satisfaction for that work Christ did on the cross in in raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand and allowing Him to continually make intercession for us so that there is never any sin in our life that ever will bring the condemning wrath of God upon us. Marvelous, isn't it? That's that's what we are standing upon, the truth of the work of Christ. And so when he asks that question, who is he who condemns? Our answer is no one. There is now in my life, despite what sins may come from my life in the coming days, and this isn't a reason to go and sin freely, Paul has already dealt with that issue. But it's in spite of what sins I may commit in the rest of my earthly life, the condemnation for every single one of them has been borne away by the Lord Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Wondrous, isn't it? And now he comes and he brings us to the fourth question. And, and every one of these questions, we're ascending the stair of the, the foundation of the assurance of God's love that, that, that we are standing upon. And this fourth question comes, and it's, I think, the highest question to consider. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Interestingly, all four of these questions ask uh, who? Who, not what. Even though Paul will bring us to the what in verse 35, he asks who, 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 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because he understands that there is a power and principality, there is an enemy of God and an enemy of God's people who is ever at work striving to rob you of the assurance of God's love, strives to to make you doubt in the faithfulness of God, striving to make you think that you are separated from the love of God. Satan. And he uses means, and that's what Paul gets to in verse 35 when he sets forth those those things that come into our lives. Satan is one who would turn our sufferings into excuses to doubt, to cast off in unbelief any confidence that we ought to have concerning the love of our Lord and Savior. And that's why he keeps asking, who, who, who? Because he understands there's this great enemy at work against us every day. And he doesn't want you to have an assurance of God's love. He doesn't want you to love God for his love for you. He doesn't want you to be dwelling on the surety of that love of God. And he is at work. And it's very interesting. I say this is probably the preeminent question before us because if you, if you look at the other three questions, he answers them in a brief manner. But here, 
He takes twice as many words to answer this question than He does for all the previous three. Like this is the one. If any of these questions you can get and solidify in your soul, it's this one. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? And why does Paul spend so much time on this? And I think this is important. Important to understand. Why? It's because of the inconsistency of our faith in the Lord. We recognize this in our own lives. You have all seen it in your own life, haven't you? Where there's some days and some weeks, you get up in the morning and you are full of faith in the Lord. You have a confidence and a surety. God is with me. I'm going forward in His power and strength. Nothing can take my feet away. (laughs) We've been there, haven't we? And then something happens in that week. And somebody comes along and, and, and they criticize us for something. And, and okay, that's one thing. Alright, I, I, I heard that, but the Lord is with me and I'm still going forward. And then something else happens. Our car breaks down and we've got to spend all our savings to get it fixed. And Well, I, I still got my car. We're still mustering that strength to move forward in confidence that God is for me and God is with me and I love Him. He loves me. We're, we're all good and we're still striving forward in our faith, but we already can feel it by that third thing that our faith is getting a little shaken, isn't it? And something more drastic happens. And we're sitting down in our chair and we're saying, oh, I thought God was for me. <laughs> Where is He? Why is this happening? And you know, even for Reformed Christians who have a, a theological, doctrinal foundation that we often rest on. And, and, and if you haven't heard this, uh, it, it's something to explore and I can explain it in more detail later. But we have, we have that understanding of, of the flower tulip, don't we? <laughs> we, we it, it's an acronym. Uh, The T stands for total depravity. We understand that we are in our own soul uh, sinners. Uh, to To the very depths of our hearts, sin dwells within us. And the U of TULIP stands for that unconditional electing love of God. But God, despite my sinfulness, has determined to call me in Christ and L limit atonement he has through the Lord Jesus Christ provided atonement for our sins and I is irresistible grace where God has exercised his grace in the power of the spirit to call me to faith and repentance in Christ and P the perseverance of the saints that God will persevere in my life to keep me we we hold fast to these doctrines of salvation and understand and if I can use the colloquialism, once saved, we are always saved. We understand that. We, we have that acronym of TULIP over us and we hold to that. But even then it becomes shaken because of circumstances and sufferings. Our faith begins to waver. How assured am I of God's love, of the Father's love? Why are all these sufferings coming into my life right now? Why is all this turmoil before me? Does God love me anymore? 
And to use a little humor here, we exchanged the tulip for the daisy. You know, in our childhood, we've all picked up that daisy. And we started plucking the petals. What's the first thing with the first petal? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And we go through it, and the closer we're getting to the end, we're wondering, what's it going to be at the end? (laughs) Are there enough petals for it to land on the good thing? (laughs) And if it doesn't work the first time, we go and pick up another one, and we do it all over again, don't we? Sometimes we'll change it. Let's start with, he loves me not first. But you know, in the Christian life, that's a reality for people. God loves me. Maybe he doesn't. God loves me. My life is being blessed. Maybe he doesn't. I've got a whole lot of suffering now. And, and doesn't our faith work that way? Don't we come to God with such doubting, double-minded faith? How assured are you of Christ's love, of the Father's love? What is the foundation of your assurance? And, and how does that assurance really show itself? Or how does the lack of that assurance show itself? And that's where Paul is taking us in these three verses. That assurance or that lack of assurance shows itself in our lives by how we respond to suffering and hard trials. That's where it shows itself. Am I assured of God's love? Trials come in to try and shake that assurance and it falters and we say, well, maybe my assurance isn't there at all. (laughs) Haven't you ever said, even as Christians, haven't you ever said, I just can't take it anymore. Or, "This this is too hard for me. I can't do it. I don't think God loves me anymore. Or even worse, we, we go into this pit that says, what have I done wrong? I must be doing something wrong if all this suffering is coming into my life. And we pick up that daisy and we play with God's love between blessings and sufferings. We pick the petals. And our faith, it's wavering, isn't it? I want to say, and this is Paul's point, I want to say, if that daisy describes your faith, then you are looking more and trusting more and resting more in yourself and in your faith than you are in the Lord Himself, the Savior of your soul. The one whom we just say is the lover of your soul. That, that's the thing. You're trusting more in yourself than you are in Christ. And that's why this is so essential that we have this foundation under us. That our faith remains firm in the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And the truth of the Father's love that has been sealed by our Savior. And that's where we are coming here. And that's why this question comes and meets us. Let's consider very briefly the question Paul asks. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That word separate 
It is a word that means to divide asunder, to tear in two, if you will. It's used in other places of Scripture, but preeminently, and I think it, it, it applies here, it is the same word that is used in Matthew 19.6 to warn against any man who would separate the bonded union of a man and woman in marriage. You have all heard these words, and those of you who have been married, and those who are getting married, you will hear them again. The words from Matthew 19, uh, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. And listen to this, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man what? Separate. It's the same word here. And I draw your attention to that. To understand that God does indeed join in the bonds of love a man and a woman to be married until they die, till one of them dies, till death do us part. And it's a bond that God has established and He warns us, do not let any man separate. And we hear those words and understand that there is a potential of separation there. And we have witnessed it, haven't we? Too many times, all of us here, I dare to say every one of you, have witnessed the breaking, the separation of that bond of love. Haven't you? It's heart-wrenching, isn't it? It's confusing when it happens within a year of the marriage. But I think it's more heart-wrenching when it's after 30 years of marriage. What? After all this time? Hasn't the love grown? Hasn't it? Hasn't it increased? Haven't you weathered the things that would have tried and sealed that bond? And we... We lament those things. We mourn over them. We've seen it. And we've seen it too many times to count. And that potential, even that potential of those bonds of love being separated has even brought great worry and discouragement to people who say, why bother getting married when the vast majority of people who do get divorced? How many of us have heard that? (laughs) And you see people make excuses for not being married because they've seen too much separation occur. Paul comes here. And what does he say when he asks this question? Who shall separate us? Who will break the bonds of God's love to us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is, no one. Do you know why? We're going to get to it more next week in the closing two verses of this chapter. Because the bond of God's love to us began from eternity 
was established and founded on the bond of the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father. And what is it that can ever separate that bond of love within the Godhead? Nothing. Because God is what? We heard it this morning. God is love. And the love that God the Father has for the Son is an eternal love that can never end. And the love that the Son has for the Father is an eternal love that can never end because God is love and God is eternal. And we are joined to that love of the Father and that love of the Son through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... No one can separate it. No one can divide it. No one can tear it asunder. Because as that last verse, those last words of verse 39 says, there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just that God loves us, and that's true, God the Father loves us, and He's demonstrated His love to us, but that He has loved us and demonstrated it in His Son, who is the love of His whole being. And so it is firmly set in His Son, and we have been brought into that love, and nothing can separate it. My friends, are you persuaded of that truth? (laughs) Do you see the logic that is behind that truth? It depends on who God is, not on how much we love God. (laughs) Even though we're called to love God, it doesn't rest with us. It rests in Christ. God the Son. That doesn't mean that things don't attempt to separate us from the love of Christ. And Paul lists for us in verse 35, seven things. He's again returning us to earlier parts of this chapter. Back to verse 18, when he talks about the sufferings of this present time. He says, how is it that we can think that our sufferings are too great to bear for us when we have eternal glory waiting for us? How can we look at our sufferings and say, oh, they're just too great for me. I give up on this faith. When Christ has won for us through what? Through His sufferings, He has won for us everlasting glory. And how is it, as He says in verse 18, how can we consider comparing our sufferings of this present time to what lays before us in eternal glory? We can't. Now, the sufferings of this present time will try to shake that assurance. And Paul lists seven things. I think seven again being that number that expresses completeness. The fullness of the sufferings that come into your life are found under one of these headings. And you will, I don't, I don't doubt this, you will probably experience some measure of every one of these things. Tribulation. Tribulation comes to attempt to separate you from the love of God. Tribulation are those things that bear great pressure upon you. That's what the word means. Pressing you down. 
And you have things that come into your life, the hard trials of your life that just seem to push you down to the ground. Distress. Anguish, calamities. This is a word that speaks about being confined into a narrow space. How many of you are claustrophobic? <laughs> you get into a closet and it's very tiny and you, <gasps> you suddenly can't breathe. Well, that, that's the sense of this word. A distress that comes and brings such affliction and calamity into your life that you feel like you're not just being pressed down. You feel like you're being squeezed. The breath is being squeezed out of you. Persecution. We're all familiar with that. The hatred and hostility of this world. How it likes to make you think that God isn't with you. God isn't for you. God doesn't love you. Look, our God is greater than your God. We can force this out of you. Famine. When you find yourself in grave need and you begin to Question Matthew six thirty three. God said, "If I if I seek His kingdom and His righteousness, He will give me the daily food that I need. He will give me the house and the clothing that I need." God, I've been seeking Your kingdom and Your righteousness. What's happening here? Where's Your promise? Maybe You don't love me anymore. You know, there's a lot of poor people who do question that. Nakedness. And I think this could mean two things, personally. I think it could mean clothing. There's a sense of that in Matthew's Gospel. And I think it also could mean the bankruptcy of sin, because Scripture often uses nakedness to express the shame of sins that we have committed, how they come into our life and we're just ashamed uh, to come before people. Well, you know what it's like when you have slandered someone and you didn't want them to know that you have been gossiping about them or you've said something wrong about them and the next time that you see them, there's this real shame and fear of wanting to see them. The nakedness of your sin brings that shame before you and upon you. It did for Adam and Eve. And certainly, when we commit sin against God, one of the hardest things isn't it? One of the hardest things is to come to God with our sins and say, Oh, Father, I have done this again. And the shame of it can make us think we're separated from God's love. Or peril. Finding yourself faced with death. You go to the doctor and you hear the words, You've got cancer. And we've got to treat it. You need chemo. And you think, God, Why is this happening? (laughs) Or the sword. You find yourself faced with martyrdom. (laughs) When you find yourself standing for the faith, feeling like God has abandoned you to the hatred of those before you. My friends, any one of these things, but all together these things generate in us a fear of suffering that often leads to a disbelief in the love of God toward us. And I want you to stop and just consider this. And when you look at every one of those things that are mentioned there, Christ endured them all. <laughs> he, he went through tribulation 
He went through those distressing times. He went through persecution. He was on the cross and one of the words He said was, I thirst. (laughs) He was stripped naked before the crowds. He was faced with death and the cruelty of the hatred of people that put Him to death. He suffered. But even more, His sufferings were of a greater spiritual nature where on the cross He in having all our sins laid upon Him He was enduring the fierceness of God's wrath that was against us for every one of our sins He suffered that wrath of God in our place He suffered the highest suffering that any could suffer hell is a place of suffering Punishment from God is not a pleasant thing. Condemnation under God's wrath is a dreadful thing. And He endured that. Again, you think of those words that He echoed from the cross. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? In that moment, however difficult it is for us to comprehend There was this separation that our Lord endured. A separation from the love and communion of His heavenly Father. He was forsaken in our place. And He suffered that to accomplish our redemption. And He suffered that to accomplish this great truth that is ours to embrace that God has said to us in light of what Christ has done for us and bringing us under the umbrella of His love. What are the words that He has said to us? I will never leave you or forsake you. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That Christ endured in our place something we will Never endure. And what is it that we will never endure? We will never be separated from the love of God. We will never be forsaken by the God who has said, I have loved you and I've shown you and demonstrated my love to you in my Son, in giving Him up for you. Nothing will separate you from that. None of your sufferings. However difficult, however intense it may be in the moment. Because your solid foundation is Jesus Christ. And and here, here is where Paul comes to encourage us. In verse 36, and he's saying, you know, understand, God's Word has told you suffering is going to be part of your life. God's Word is trying to prepare you that you will endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. Be ready for it. Don't despise it. Don't doubt or charge God with wrongdoing. Don't doubt the Father's love to you because your life becomes hard and difficult. Rather understand, as he says there in verse 36, it's been written, for your sake we are killed. Psalm 44, verse 22, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yes, we're going to suffer in this world. We're going to suffer at the hands of this world. We're going to suffer at the hands and the workings of the evil one himself. 
But it's for the sake of the God who has loved us. For your sake. It's not because you don't love me, God, but it's because I am yours. (laughs) This is what marks us as the loved ones of God. Jesus said it in Luke 9. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and what? And take up his cross. We're not taking up the cross of Christ. He has borne that cross for us. We're not taking up a cross that condemns us, that holds us in judgment. Christ has taken that cross. But we are taking up our crosses, the things appointed for us by God's wise and providential grace, the things that He has marked out for us that will bring forth His glory in our lives. Take up your cross daily and follow Him, Jesus said. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says there, Beloved, that's how he begins it, Beloved, people who are loved by God, not people who have been abandoned by God, not people who have been separated from God's love. No, people, you who are the beloved of God, don't think it a strange thing when fiery trials come upon you. Don't say, what is this strange thing that is happening to you? Understand that in your life, suffering will mark you and rejoice because you are partaking of Christ's sufferings. That is, you are joining in the sufferings that Jesus himself endured in his earthly life to secure your eternal glory. And rejoice that you to whatever extent it is in your life that you are suffering, you are partaking of Christ's sufferings so that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. That sounds contradictory to our human understanding, doesn't it? But that's the reality. That God God ordained that life for Christ and brought Him into glory. God has ordained it for our lives, not for the purpose of separation and doubt, but for the purpose of affirming your union with His Son. You are in Christ. And that's why He's able to say there in verse 37, in all these things, not in spite of these things, not outside of these things, But in all our sufferings, we are more than conquerors through Him who has loved us. Because we have been united to the suffering love of our Lord and Savior. My friends, the cross of Christ, the unimaginable sufferings of our Lord and Savior demonstrated to us the Father's love for us. They demonstrated to us Jesus' love for us. But those sufferings of Christ did not end in defeat, did they? They ended in resurrection and ascending glory and establishment at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. They ended in glorious triumph and exaltation. And my friends, if we are in Christ and we are enduring our sufferings in all our sufferings, they're not going to end in defeat. What are they going to end in? Glory. 
eternal glory. Because the victory that Christ has won is a victory that we have been united to in His love. And where Christ proved His love for us in His sufferings, so we prove our love for Him by enduring faithfully. And where Christ proved His love for us in His sufferings, how can we think that our our sufferings that don't measure to His, how can we think that our sufferings are able to undo the bonds of that love? They can't. And that's why Paul is wanting us to understand, and we'll complete this next week, but he wants us to understand there is an inseparable nature, an inseparable bond and union that we have to the love of God. And our sufferings are only taking us further into that bond, not away from it. May you be more than conquerors through Him who has loved you. May you know the assurance that you are firmly set in the hands of the Father and the Son. Let us pray.